Those that come, when they come. So welcome to today's lesson number three, which we'll be talking about beyond taking offense. What we'll be discussing today is when does it become our moral responsibility to intervene and to speak up and to try to change the events or that may happen from it. So what we have today is we're going to talk about three different case studies to use them as our examples for today and then look at them from the eyes from the secular law, from Jewish law and even more so as we're especially as we're standing right before Shavuos this Sunday as we're going to be celebrating Shavuos we'll see how that responsibility that we have to one another was given to us at Sinai and every single year on Shavuos we recommit to that responsibility as we'll soon see today as we go on with the class. So case study number one, uh, it's an actually a case that happened and this is a little scary because it's just coming off what happened in Texas, it seems a little similar. Page 76, Joseph C. Meek Jr., a friend of Dylan S. Roof's, who spent time with them in the weeks before nine people were killed at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church here, was sentenced Tuesday to 27 months in prison for hampering and misleading the federal authorities in the aftermath of Mr. Roof's racist massacre. Mr. Meek, 22 years old, pleaded guilty last April to two federal accounts related to the truthfulness of his response to the FBI in interviews shortly after the shooting on June 17th of 2015. Misprison of a felony and making a false statement to law enforcement officer Misprison refers to the failure to report a known crime. The government did not prosecute Mr. Meek for failing to, dissolve no to disclose knowledge of Mr. Roof's plan to attack the church, although it asserted in court's filings that his silence did deprive law enforcement of the opportunity to intervene. During a night of drinking and a drug use about a week before the shooting, Mr. Roof and Mr. Meek that he wanted to kill black people at a historic African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. In order to start a race riot, according to the FBI summaries of interviews with him, Mr. Meek was concerned enough to hide Mr. Roof's handgun after he fell asleep, but later returned it and did not report the threat to law enforcement. Certainly, defendant's failure to make an earlier report is tragic and deeply regrettable, but his failure to report was not a violation of federal criminal law, Judge Gergel wrote last week, in order that denied prosecutor's request to give Mr. Meek a, long term, a longer term than recommended in sentencing guidelines. In his initial FBI interview, Mr. Meek denied having known Mr. Roof's plan and Mr. Roof had not spoken of target for his attack, according to Assistant United States Attorney Julius N. Richardson. But in his second interview, Mr. Meek admitted that he had lied according to the FBI synopsis for the session, of the session. He also admitted that on the night of the shootings, after concluding that Mr. Roof was responsible for the attack, he told others not to contact law enforcement. So what we see over here is, number one, our case over here is, Joseph Meek, he knew of Dylan's intent, Roof's intention to commit a massacre, chose not to report it to the authorities who could have prevented it. Despite that, his failure to report a planned crime in advance did not constitute a legal offense. 
Our question today to you is, in your opinion, should the act of reporting a plot that involves serious crime be considered commendable, morally imperative, or a legal obligation? So what would you say reporting a crime is? Anybody? So we know in today's day and age, there's something that we know if you see something, say something. But is it a crime if you don't report it? There is no legal obligation. Probably we would say it's commendable. They're morally imperative. But we cannot say it's legally obligated, as we'll soon see. Let's take case number two. Case number two, case B, if we want to call it. Page 78. Rachel strolls along the street one evening, passing a store that is closed for the night. Glancing through the window, she notices that the air conditioning was left on when it was supposed to be turned off, costing the store owners money. Rachel's unaware of the store owner's identity, but she may be able to receive the owner's contact details from the operators nearby, stores that are still open. In your opinion, should the effort to alert the store owner to costly oversight be considered A, commendable, B, morally imperative, or C, a legal obligation? So again, you see the question over here is alerting to a costly oversight. You see the air conditioning running, the store is closed, the lights are on. Are you supposed to go out of your way to find who the store owner is and call them up and ask them and tell them that you left the air conditioning on? Anybody? So I'm sure you would all agree it's not a legal obligation. Maybe it's commendable. Is it a moral obligation, morally imperative? Maybe yes, maybe no. We'll review all the three cases in just a moment as we go through it. And here's finally case, number study, case study number C. And this is based on a Pew Research of in 2021. And over here it says that you might find this research pretty fascinating. You have a figure of it on 3.1 on page 80, but we'll have it up here on, you have it up here on the slide as well. Overall, about a quarter of U.S. Jewish adults, 27%, do not identify with Jewish religion. They consider themselves to be Jewish ethnically, culturally, or by family background, and have a Jewish parent who were raised Jewish. But they answer a question about their current religion by describing themselves as an atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, rather than as Jewish. Among Jewish adults under 30, now listen to this astonishing thing, 4 in 10 describe themselves this way. That means the number drastically goes up. So you see, 67 percent, 67, 27 of no percent of no religion, 73 percent of Jews of religion. So if you look by the numbers, 33 percent, 40 percent, how you see how it continues. Then you look back, then among all respondents who indicate that have some kind of Jewish background, those who were raised Jewish by religion have the highest retention rate. Nine in ten U.S. adults who were raised Jewish by religion still identify as Jewish today, including 76% who remain Jewish by religion, and 30% are now categorized as Jews of no religion. By comparison, three-quarters of those raised as Jews of no religion still identify as Jewish today. Roughly, ha roughly half are still Jews of no religion, and about one in five now Jewish by religion. Among those who had at least one Jewish parent, but who say they were not raised exclusively Jewish, either by religion or aside from religion, far fewer identify as Jewish today. What we have over here, not getting into the technicalities, are basically saying that we see that someone else, we see a level of Jewish observance is on a very big low. 
And the question, if we talk about 9 out of 10 Americans raised today, Jewish by religion, and 3 quarters of Jews are raised with no religion at all. What does that tell us? What does that make as our obligation? Our question then is, is someone else's Jewish observance your responsibility? So what we have over here, we're going to go through the three case studies that we spoke about. Our first case was, and we'll just go back for a moment. Our first case over here was when we talk about reporting a planned crime. These are all studies that we talk about in a case like case study A. A person knows that he's going to go shooting. You know about a friend who's going to take a gun and is going to shoot up a place. Are you morally responsible to tell that person not to do it or to stop him? Or to tell the authorities. Morally responsible, I'm sure everybody in this room will agree that we are morally responsible. And we have a responsibility from preventing of a crime of causing other people. The only real debate is, is it legal or not? Is it something which is the law that I have to impose and therefore should this person be punished if he did not report the crime? Case now, study number two, is a case talking about when you see somebody's air condition running, are you morally obligated or should you call that person and alert that person to let them know that their air condition's running, they're not in the store and they're losing a lot of money because of it? Is it your business? Or you say, mind your own business, it's not your store, it's not that much of a cost. Is there something that you should be obligated? It was the store owner's own negligence, he could have turned off his air conditioning, the fact that he didn't, it's his problem. Stop mixing into other people's business and just keep yourself on your merry way. So I'm sure every, not everyone would see this as a moral imperative. It's the guy's star shop, I don't tell him how to, what, maybe he wanted to have it cold for the next day, maybe he didn't, maybe he has produce there, who knows what. Is it my obligation? It's not something that I'm sure everybody agreeable over here that should be technically legally required that you should have to go find out who the person is that you should be able to go find and call him and tell him that his air condition is running and so on and so forth. Well, how about regarding case C, where we talk about Judaism the way it is today? Everyone over here is in agreement that we got to do something to strengthen Jewish identity. Everybody agrees that there's a problem with today's society, the decline of religion, decline of morals, the decline of ethics, or whatever it may be. And therefore, and the very fact that you are here today, that in itself shows that you have some type of bias because you're here today to study about Jewish law means that you have some keen interest in Judaism and probably in an interest in Judaism of making sure of teaching it to other people. But the question is, uh, where does that responsibility lie? Where does it begin and where does it end? Is it my responsibility? Well, there are many Jewish people and let them, bring their, let them bring their children the way they want, let them educate themselves the way they want. Or is there a moral obligation that we should be looking out for another Jew and taking ourselves and making ourselves interested in other people's, uh, of course, in a non-imposing, non-judgmental way, but to, or to encounter and to confront Jews and to explain to them and to teach them about Judaism and so on. And what we're going to learn today, what is the Torah's perspective? What is the Torah's perspective to the extent of our responsibility to other people? What does it mean that we have to be responsible for others? And to what extent do we have to be responsible for others? And as this class unfolds today, you will find out uh, from the Jewish perspective some shocking extremes that the Torah goes to, to the level of our responsibility. But before we begin... What does it mean to be responsible? 
When we talk about Judaism, especially as we're looking at what the Torah's perspective is, the same way every law speaks to its constituents, Judaism speaks to the Jewish people. So when the Torah tells us laws pertaining civil or non-civil laws, moral and ethical laws, though there are many parts of the Torah that are addressed to the entire humanity as a whole, but most of the Torah for 613 commandments and the entire Torah is basically addressing the Jews of how they should behave. And therefore, in the case of our lesson, Jewish laws expressing the concept of social responsibility on Jewish terms, meaning that the logic and the values that are taught here are how a Jewish person should approach this idea and this concept of responsibility. So what does Judaism tell us about it? So, as we mentioned, we're right before the holiday of Shavuos. The holiday of Shavuos is going to be this Sunday and Monday, and it commemorates 3,338 years ago as the Jewish people were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And when the Jewish people were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses comes to them and he tells them that God wants to give you the Torah. And the sages tell us that he went to all the other nations in the universe. And he offered them the Torah and they declined for one reason or another because they asked first, what does it say in it? And they said, nah, that's too tough for us to follow. He came to the Jewish people and we see in text number one, the Jewish people said, the people all responded on page 83 in unison, we will do everything God has said. said. Before they asked what is in there, they said, we're willing to do it. We're going to do it. The Medrash tells us that this idea that they said that they will do it doesn't only say that I will do it, they said we will do it. Means that the Medrash is coming to tell us that at that moment as the Jewish people were at the foot of Mount Sinai, they made a pact. They made a promise to one another. Text number two. When the Jewish people accepted God's rule at Mount Sinai, they did so joyfully as one. As the verse states, they all responded in unison. In doing so, the very fact they responded together, they even committed to serving as guarantors for each other. That means that the Medrash tells us over here that at that moment as the Jewish people were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, they said that I guarantee, that we guarantee for one another. What does it mean a guarantor? Typically a guarantor is used in terms of loans. That A, Mr. A borrows money from Mr. B, and Mr. C says that if Mr. A does not pay back, I guarantee I will take the place of Mr. A and make sure that that loan is paid back. That means, what does this mean in this case? That they accept, Mr. C accepts responsibility for whatever Mr. A took upon himself. When we talk about the Jewish people by Mount Sinai, not only did they assume responsibility for themselves, but they also resumed responsibility for each other. That to make sure that one another will be there to help each other, to be there for each other, to make sure one another uh, follow the Torah. And in fact, what is this telling us? This responsibility wasn't only from, any, from a particular commandment, but the responsibility was for every single one of the commandments. That the observance, whether it's Shabbos, Tefillin, blowing the shover, interpersonal obligations, honest business dealings. When we accepted the Torah Mount Sinai, we accepted it as a personal commandment for ourselves. And all those commandments also to make sure to help one another and care for one another to make sure that all Jews observe these commandments as well. 
And the Medrash tells us as follows and gives an example and a parable for it. And the Medrash says like this, text number three, all Jews are mutually responsible. This can be compared to a ship where a hole has been ruptured in one end of its cabins. We do not exclaim a cabin is ruptured, rather we say the entire ship is ruptured. When we talk about the concept of social responsibility from a Jewish perspective, or from a Jewish perspective, when we talk about, in contrast, the secular perspective, a secular perspective doesn't even talk about responsibility. Whoops, I'm sorry. A secular, uh, a secular environment doesn't even talk about responsibility. I only worry about things that affect me. I only talk about the things that affect me. It's also expected in any form of social responsibility that what am I looking to do? I got to take care of myself. And as long as I'm okay, that's what counts. I have my first priority. My only priority is that I don't commit any crimes and I do good things and hopefully the world will be a better place. That's all. I have to take care of myself. But when it comes to a Jewish perspective, we look at every individual action affects our common goal. And what is the example that the Talmud of the Medrash gives about a boat? What's this concept about a boat? So the Medrash gives a story, we said it in short here, but imagine a guy sitting on a boat and he starts drilling a hole in the floor of the boat by his seat in his own cabin. A guy tells him, what are you doing? You're making a hole in the boat. He says, what do you care? It's my cabin. What's the problem when you make a hole in your cabin? You're putting down the whole boat. That's what the Medrash says when there's a hole in your cabin. We don't say your cabin is sinking. We say the entire ship is sinking. The same idea over here, the Torah sees this concept of the universal experience and the purpose in our existence as true something to humanity as well. There's no such thing as individualized cabins. We're in it together. We're all in this universe together. There's no such thing in your cabin, my cabin. We don't live in a bubble. And today, especially more so with the internet and social media, and today how small the world has become, there's no such thing as living in a bubble. You don't just live in your own home. You don't just drive into your driveway and the doors close behind you and everything just happens in a vacuum. Whatever happens in your home, whatever you do, has an effect on the entire world. It's our ship. And this is the responsibility that the Torah is telling us. It's not only our ship, but the same way the ship sails together and has a common destination. It's not one person in the cabin is going one place and another person in the cabin is going to another place. Everybody on the ship is all in the same destiny. We're all getting to the same place. So when we talk about the 613 commandments that were given to the Jewish people, because the purpose that is shared by all Jewish people is universal. And therefore, every single individual's action makes a difference. We all are on the same boat. And if you drill a hole in your cabin, it's going to affect all of us. And if you row properly, it's going to affect all of us as well. Maimonides puts it famously this way, and I'm sure you heard me say this quote from Maimonides many times. Text number four. We should always consider ourselves in the entire world as equally balanced between merit and guilt. If we perform one transgression, we may keep our personal balance and that of the entire world to the side of guilt. And we bring destruction upon everyone. Conversely, if we perform one mitzvah, we may tip our balance and the entire world to the side of merit, bringing deliverance and salvation to all. 
The dynamic is reflected in the verse, a righteous person is the foundation of the world. Meaning that a person who acts righteously tips the balance of the entire world and saves it. What is Maimonides telling us over here? The concept of mutual responsibility. Every single act we do has a ramification. It doesn't just happen. You do one kind act, you can change the entire universe. You do one opposite of a kind act, it can also make a difference to the universe. This is when we talk about the parable to the ship. The parable to the ship over here that Maimonides is explaining to us comes very clearly. We are all passengers on one ship, and because of that, we don't have necessarily a private space. We disregard the argument, well, big deal, I'm in my house, I'm in my place, don't bother me, I'm doing the right thing, what do I have to worry about the rest of the world? The reason is because that doesn't work. You can be doing the right thing in your cabin, but if the guy next door is drilling a hole, you're going to sink. And we see what the world is coming today. Are there great people today in the world? 100%. But unfortunately, if we have one more immoral, decadent individual, can bring destruction and havoc to great many moral people. And happy people. And if we don't take responsibility for one another, what happens? The more of those holes in the cabins are going to create, and the more the ship is going to sink. So we need to look at ourselves as we're all responsible for one another. Because this journey that we're on, it's not our own personal. We, though we all have our own, so to speak, personal ship and our own personal journey and our own personal destination, but we all come together. There's a bunch of cabins. We're all part of it. At one point, we're all together. And therefore, in Judaism's view, we're all on the same boat. We're all on the same way. And therefore, we have that responsibility. Any mitzvah that we do is shared with everybody in our destination. And God forbid any act that we do in the opposite is also shared. And as a result of this concept, Judaism's view of responsibility towards one another is much more expansive than the secular point of view of responsibility. And it encompasses our positive action and God forbid our negative actions as well. That's on one level. But then there's even a greater level. Many ask the question, you know, they even ask the question to the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, a holy saint and a great rabbi. They asked him, my own kipper, do you say the confession that you've sinned? Or better yet, they asked, you know, there are many of those sins that are Yom kipper that I've never done. Why am I saying the sins if for many of them I've never done? And the Arizal explained as follows. When we talk about responsibility, until now we spoke about responsibility as a guarantor for one another. You took something upon yourself, and therefore, out of the kindness of my heart, I'm going to share with you that responsibility. Or the fact that we have a common destiny. We are in a common boat. We are in a common sailing someplace. And because of that, we all are responsible for one another if we want to make it to the destination. And therefore, we all have to act responsible. But it was still as an individual. There's many individuals, there are many different cabins, and we all need to act responsibly as individuals. Darizal explains and says that the word in Hebrew for responsible or guarantor is arvut, arev. Now that word arvut, arev, can mean multiple things. In Hebrew, one word can mean a lot of things. It can mean sweet. But it can also mean mixed together. 
combined, commingled. When two things are blended into one another, you know, when you put something in the blender and you mix it together, you no longer can separate the apples from the strawberries and the bananas. It's all big, one big shake. You can tell me all the ingredients in it, but when I look at it, I don't see the separate ingredients. I see a shake. The Arizal said the same thing is the Kabbalah explains to us. It's true of our mutual responsibility to know one another. Call Yisrael, all Jewish people are commingled, we're all mixed together in the same shake. There's bananas, there's strawberries, there's rotten apples, they're all mixed together. We're all one. And therefore, just like different people, may not like different people may be on the same boat, but we're inherently one individual. Look at the words of the Arizal in, from the Ramak, from Moshe Kordavar on text number 5. He says as follows, page 87. All Jews are interrelated because our souls are commingled. And we each share a part of each other's soul. That is why all Jews bear mutual responsibility with we each possess an actual spirit of our fellow. As a result, when one Jew transgresses, their actions cause damage to themselves and inflict damage, not only to themselves, but to the entire fellow Jews. Therefore, we all should seek for each other's benefit, rejoice in each other's success, respect our fellow Jew, and respect ourselves because we really are one. This is the basis of the commandment to love your fellow as yourself. From this perspective that our souls are not only gives us even a deeper concept of responsibility, that our actions of our others don't just affect our shared mission, but they affect us on the soul level. So why do I say the confession if I never did that sin? Is because maybe somebody else did it. And if somebody else did it, that means I did it. Why do the great tzaddikim, great righteous people have to say the confession of seemingly they did nothing wrong? Because as long as one Jew may be doing something wrong, all Jews are doing it. So all of a sudden over here we see now from this perspective we are just one. We're not just in the same boat. We're in the same cabin. We're the same individual. So if you see somebody doing something wrong, it's not that person doing something wrong. As the Baal Shem Tov used to say, that if you see something happening in this world, as wrong as it may be, and you say, wow, what a terrible sin or a terrible act, you have to ask yourself, why did God make you see that? What can I learn from it? What does that mean to me? What is going wrong in the world within myself that has to be repaired? Because when one Jew does something, we all are doing it. It's a mutual responsibility. We're commingled together. So now that we understand what responsibility means according to the Torah, let's see how this is expressed in Jewish law. So let's start by discussing first the responsibility of the material well-being of somebody else, and then we'll go to the spiritual well-being at the end. So first, the material well-being. So we know that the Torah tells us that we have laws of charity. We have to take care of people that are less fortunate than ourselves. The Torah tells us, and as we discussed in many uh, classes before, I think it was in Judaism's Gift to the World, we discussed the concept that the Torah introduced to the world of caring for another person. The very fact of being righteous and generous was a godly idea, as we know in the time of Noah and before Abraham, there was never such a thing of somebody caring for another person. If you were poor, you dropped dead, and if you were rich, you lived great. But taking care of somebody that was less fortunate was a Torah virtue that was introduced. But in today we'll focus from a different element of responsibility, the obligation to protect somebody from harm. Text number 6a. Do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. 
That's a very strong verse. So what does that mean? What does it mean to not stand by of the shedding of your... Maimonides explains as follows. Text number 6b. The prohibition, of, of, uh, the prohibition forbids us to refrain from intervening to save others when we see that they are in danger of death or financial loss. And we have the ability to rescue them. For example, if someone is drowning in the sea and you're able to swim and save him, or if robbers are planning to kill someone and you're able to dissuade the plotters to protect the victim from harm, regarding all such cases, we are commanded do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. So Maimonides over here gives us two cases over here. Case number one is where a person is in mortal danger. He's about to drown and you know how to swim. You have an obligation to jump in and save him. And number two is financial harm. So let's talk about the first case of mortal danger. When we talk about saving somebody from mortal danger, in legal language, this is called the duty to rescue. Some European countries, including France and Germany, have laws called the duty to rescue. Israel also does, but most common law countries like England, Canada, Australia, and nearly all U.S. states, there are no such laws. There is no law of a duty to rescue. There is a law called the Good Samaritan Law which protects a person that if he does rescue, and by chance he doesn't help the person and he does injure the person, you are protected under the Good Samaritan Law. Interestingly enough, not all states have a Good Samaritan Law. Majority of the United States do, but not all states do. The duty to rescue and the details uh, of it we discussed in other cases, but the scenario is about a person who plans to kill someone, but hasn't yet put that plan into action. Maimonides over here says, don't stand by, and therefore anyone who is aware of a murderous plot is obligated to do all in his power, either by changing the plotter's mind or by reporting it to the authorities and protecting the victim. You have two ways of doing it. Either protect the victim or change the plotter's mind or get rid of the perpetrator. Under secular law, Almost in all countries, this concept of mandatory preventing of a crime does not exist. Therefore, in our case, as we saw in our first case study, in our case study where we had a fellow who knew about, where Dylan Roof's friend, he knew about Joseph Meek, that he was going to go and blow up a church and kill people there, and the very fact that he did not report it to authorities he was not legally bound by it. He was not punished because of it. The reason why he was arrested and the reason why he got a prison sentence was because he lied to the FBI. Not because he didn't report. That means as long as a person, according to, legal, according to U.S. law, as long as you're not aiding and abetting a terrorist or a person to do any harm, you are not responsible. Of course there is, if you see something, say something. But that's only out of a good Samaritan. That's only because of the kindness of your heart. It's commendable to do so. But you are not legally, you have no legal ab uh, mandate to report a crime either that happened under your watch or that you know will happen. And in this case, Meek's only mistake was that he, didn't, that he lied to the FBI. Of course we hope that any normal human being that knows about a crime, especially about a guy that's going to go blow up a bunch of people, should report it and should say something to the authorities. But at the end of the day, that is a personal choice, but is not mandated by law. And the reason is 
The, there are three reasons that are given why U.S. law does not mandate that a person has to report it. Number one is because generally you can only uh, penalize or arrest somebody for an act of commission, not an act of omission. That means I can only mandate you to do something, the, penalize you if you did something, not penalize you if you didn't do something. It's an interesting thing that in Jewish law there's also a similar thing that one would not get punished. According to Jewish law, we cannot punish somebody for not doing something. We can only punish them for doing something. There is The rabbis enacted in order to enforce people to step up to the plate, as we'll soon see, that there was a way to penalize people for that as well. But as we can see, according to secular law, generally only acts of commission are criminalized, not acts of omission. I think the only act of omission is penalized is if you omit something on your tax return. <laughs> The, uh, another reason is, is because the government was very worried about a totalitarian government. If we're going to create an environment where people snitch on each other, each person is going to snitch on another, another person. And just think back to communist Russia, the KGB, and especially Jews living under the communist rule. Who are they most afraid of? The snitches that we're going to go tell the government. And if we're going to create an environment where everybody's going to be telling on each other, and that's the only way law enforcement finds out things about that, that does not create a good environment. But like I said, they can't stop anybody before they actually did something. Where? In which case? In general. They, they can't. can't. But if a person would come forward, it's commendable that a person should, but we cannot make a law that if you didn't, you should be penalized because of it, because then we're going to create a totalitarian government where all of a sudden everybody's going to become a bunch of snitch. In fact, there's just an interesting tidbit talking about taxes. I once asked an IRS agent, what's their biggest leads? Is all they said snitches because they're so overloaded with so many things to do to, they, they, in most so cases, the, right? So most of the cases that they know about is because people inform. But just an interesting uh, idea. The concept over here is, but from a government, that's another reason why. A third reason is because it is very difficult to know a person can say, I didn't know. How much did he know? I didn't know what he was going to do with the gun. I only knew he said, maybe he was drunk, maybe he didn't mean it. If you're going to go every time somebody says a stupid comment and call the police on them, you're going to have a lot of stupid people arrested. I mean, it's a, people say stupid things at stupid times. And therefore, yes, in today's hypersensitive environment, we have to look into it and nothing should be let go. But at the same time, we can never determine. It is very difficult to penalize and say, you knew about it, so therefore you should have stopped him. You say, how much did I know? I thought he was drunk. I didn't know that he was me. I didn't know yeah, he was going to mean it. Correct. It's another case, and that's what happens as well. But at the same time, in contrast, Jewish law does not prescribe to a mandatory punishment for passive violations of the law. However, courts are given the authority to impose punishments for violators for problems that they feel are prevalent and therefore would require it, as we mentioned. Additionally, Jewish Judaism teaches us that violators of the Jewish law are judged by God. That means if you knew about something and you did not say, God knows exactly what you did, even though we as the court here in this world can only judge what a person does, and we don't know what's in the mind and hearts of an individual, God does, and therefore, according to Jewish law, Jewish law would consider Meek, in this case, a criminal for not doing everything in his possibility, whether it's alerting the police, taking away the guy's guns, or anything that this person did, and therefore, he would be punished, whether by God or in certain cases even by man, for what he has done. 
So over here we see a direct contrast between Jewish law and secular law. While in secular law, there is no legal obligation to report a, a person's uh, bad behavior or what they intend to do, even a bad behavior. It's only uh, complimentary. It's a moral obligation, if you believe so. Jewish law, not only are you morally obligated, but you are legally obligated and can even have a penalization to it. What about a monetary, uh, monetary responsibility? So while the literal meaning of the word that we mentioned in text number 6a was do not stand on your blother, by your brother's blood, which one can translate to physical or mortal loss, Maimonides takes this principle and applies it to monetary loss as well. And Maimonides, Maimonides says we are forbidden to stand by and ignore a fellow Jews' property being washed away or destroyed. If you see somebody else's property being damaged and you have the possibility to save it, you have an obligation to save it. One of these expressions are found in a very simple case, which you would never, which, in, which is Jewish law. And Jewish law talks about, we don't say finders, keepers, losers, weepers. We say, if you find something, you have an obligation to return that lost item to the person who lost it. Not only do you have an obligation to return that lost item, you have to go out of your way, do due diligence to be able to find the person who lost the item. Now, there are exceptions. There's a whole tractate called Baba Metzia about things that are found, if it has a sign, if it doesn't have a sign, if the person gave up hope, if I got it before the person gave up hope or not. But contractually, legally, if you find something, it's a law that's brought in the book of Deuteronomy, text number 7, you shall not witness your fellow's acts or sheep straying or ignore them. Rather, you must return them to your fellow. So must you do with anything by your fellow lost. The Talmud says, well, this sounds like very superfluous that the, that the Torah goes on to give me many different examples. And the Talmud says, the Torah says, a cow, a ox, I'm a sheep, and then it says anything that are lost. So the Talmud explains in text number 8, Rava taught, the verse states, so must you do with anything belonging to your fellow. The mention of anything comes to include preventing damage to someone else's property. Rabbi Hananiah said to Rava, there is an earlier teaching that supports your ruling. If you observe flood water advancing towards your fellow's field, you must erect a barrier to protect the field. What we see over here very clearly is that the Torah over here tells us that Jewish law obligates a person to protect somebody else's property. That means not only am I obligated to return lost property if I see something lost and I know it belongs to a Jew, am I obligated to find the person who it is and return it to them? But if I see, for example, there's a flood coming and this guy's car, this guy's property, or there's a method that I can move it to make sure that this guy's property should not get damaged, I have to do whatever I can to save that person's property. So that's the next point. But what about to what extent? To what extent do I have to go and save somebody else's property? I know that I have to go and save a life. And I have to spend much money even if it means to save a life. <coughs> but what about saving somebody else's property to what extent? Text number nine. If you find your own lost, your own lost object alongside your father's lost object, okay, and you can only take one, Retrieving your personal asset takes precedence. If you encounter your lost object alongside your teachers, again, your personal asset takes precedence. Your assets always take precedence over those of somebody else's. That means if you may lose something, 
From here, there's a law that is derived from Yehuda quoted Rav. The verse states, so that there's no impoverished among you, you must avoid becoming impoverished, so your assets take precedence over the assets over anyone else. So over here, clearly the Torah says, we don't want you to become poor in order to save somebody else's things, so always your things take precedence over somebody else's. However, Rabbi Yehuda quoted a warning issued by Rav. People who are overly strict in the application of this principle will eventually meet the impoverished state they are seeking to avoid. That means if you're worried that if I'm going to help that other person, I'm not going to have a penny to myself, Rabbi Yehuda says, you know what? One day you won't have a penny to yourself. Why? Because you're too over-worried about it. There's an unbelievable commentary that gives a parable. They actually made a children's book about this parable, which is an amazing story. He says as follows. He says, there was once this fellow, very wealthy Jew, who his father was getting elderly, and his father was staying in his house, and he couldn't have his father in his home anymore. He was making the rugs too dirty. He was too old. He was, couldn't handle them. And he therefore he decided he put his, fam- his father out on the street, and his father was sitting with all the beggars, collecting money and everything else. One day the grandchild was given five coins to go buy a candy, and as he's walking down the street, he hears an old man call out to him and says, My dear grandson, I'm freezing cold. Can you go get me a coat? He looks at the old beggar and sees it's his grandfather sitting on the street with all the beggars. He says, How's my grandfather sitting here? He takes the five coins, gives it to his grandfather, and he says, But please get me a coat. He comes home and he asks his father, Do you have a coat I can go give? Grandpa. And his father says, Oh, what do I have to give him a coat? It's enough that I gave him this, what he has. You know what? Upstairs in the attic, there's a coat. You can go take it and give it to grandpa. He goes up into the attic and he sees the coat. And it's torn and it has holes in it. And the young boy takes the scissors and starts cutting the coat in half. He cuts the coat in half. And he comes downstairs and his father sees him with the half a coat. And his father asks him, what is this? I told you to take the coat from the attic. Why did you cut it in half? The young boy looks at him and his father and he says, I'm saving the other half for when, I get, when you get old and you're on the street to give it to you. Over here we see something where sometimes we become so infatuated with how much money, what's it going to cost me, this I'm going to lose money, and we don't realize and avoid the greater picture and the bigger picture. In fact, just talking about this, somebody sent me uh, an interesting line, uh, a quote. What? No, he, this is this one from Adam Grant, whatever he says as follows. Sacrificing health and family for work is not an expression of loyalty. It's a sign of poor priorities. Dedication is not what you give up for your job, is what you give to your job. Commitment is reflected in the values people uphold and the contributions they make. I thought that was a very poignant line, but as applies here too. And this is what the Talmud's saying here. The Talmud first establishes a law. And what does the Talmud say to the laws? Yes. A person does not have to save another's assets if because of that you're going to have a personal loss. I don't have to do that. That's true. And that's regardless. It doesn't make a difference whose assets, whether it's your fathers, your teachers. You have an obligation to make sure that you're taken care of. That means if you know for certain that by you saving the other person's things, you're going to lose money because of it, then really you don't have to. But if there's any doubt that you will, or for example, if you put out money to save that person's item, that person is then obligated to pay you back. You don't have to lose money because of it. 
that guy has to pay you back. But the Talmud states this as an unqualified rule, meaning that it applies in any case, whether it's a great expense or a small expense. If you're going to put out the money and you know the guy's going to pay you back, put out the money, save that guy's item, and then he'll pay you back for it. Doesn't make it for how much money. But if you're going to have a loss from it, well, that's the letter of the law. The Talmud also guides us and says, you know what? There's something that's beyond the letter of the law. And what beyond the letter of the law is that even if there's going to be a loss, think about the other half of the code. Think about the value. Think about the moral uh, morality that's here. What can you achieve and accomplish by it? Sometimes we have to go beyond and say, you know what? Yes, I can get away with it. But what kind of difference is this going to make? How can I show and make a Kiddush Hashem and make sanctify God's name? I just today had a certain interesting case. I went to fill up gas. I paid cash. You have to pay in advance. And they pump. And the guy, usually you tell them how much. And they set at the limit. And he didn't set the limit. And it went over. So I went inside and gave the extra dollar. What does the person see? If sees a Jew comes in and pays the extra. And could have drove away. Was just, the guy said, thank you for being honest. This is the, we can, many times it happens that we can just stand up. And it doesn't take much. And this is what the Talmud asks of us, to be honest. The Talmud shows a case which is an extreme case of Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa, that once he found two, once a person left a bag, a basket of eggs, and he was looking for the owner to return the eggs. He couldn't find the owner. So he took the eggs in, hoping that soon the owner will come and will be able to give it to, to the owner. But meanwhile, the eggs hatched, and he had chicks. And those chicks made more chickens, and those chickens made more chickens. Two years later, they see the guy passing by and he said, you know, I once forgot eggs here. They said, oh, you're the guy that forgot the eggs. Come, let me return it to you. And he brings them into his farm and he gives them two goats. So he says, I don't understand. I left eggs, not goats. He says, well, those eggs became chicks. Those chicks had more chickens and more chickens and we couldn't handle so many chickens and we sold all the chickens and we got goats and these are yours. And the Talmud shows us this is an exemplary way of returning a lost object that not only did he take care of them, not only did he hold on to them, but he was able to invest in the person and give him what he needed. But again, this is what the Torah tells us when it comes to a monetary expense. Our responsibility is to take care of that monetary expense. So when we talk about case study B, where a person's passing by and you see the air condition running, legally, in this case, from a secular law, what would be the situation? So when it comes to an effort, of course a person should put in an effort to be able to do it, to make sure and see to it. Though you're not legally able to compensate the person, but you should make an effort to be able to do it, as we see in text number 10. If we encounter lost items of significant value to the point that they were our own, we would not bother to collect them and take them home. We are nevertheless obligated to take the necessary effort to restore them to the owner. The rationale is that we have the right to relinquish our own possessions if their value is outweighed by the physical burden they impose. However, we have no right to unilaterally relinquish someone else's ownership over their possessions. The Torah does not allow us to spare any effort, even if the effort is great and the value of the item is minimal. Over here, Allah takes an interesting attitude. What if you wouldn't care that your air condition runs? So you say, well, I don't care if my air condition's on all night. Why should I care if somebody else's? But Jewish law says, no, one second. You can be in charge of your own thing. But that's somebody else's money. Who gives you the right to say that that person's money is of less value? And therefore, if you see something, you have to take some effort. You have to 
do the effort and be able to make sure that you call the person, let them know that there's a monetary loss. But what happens if you're going to lose money because of it? So in this case, where Rachel says that she, she would be obligated to seek out who the owner is, even though it's going to be a bother to find out who it is and make sure, even though it's only a small loss, and tell them that their air conditioning is running. But what happens if the person failed to fulfill his obligation and because of that, the owner incurred a loss? Text number 11. Then that person wouldn't be able to turn it off either. So you're not saving the money, technically. So you can't do anything about it, because they can't do anything about it. Text number 11. Those who could rightly testify for someone but fail to do so are not legally liable to provide compensation for the damage they could have prevented. However, such people will not be granted divine forgiveness until they pay the damage. Over here we're talking about as though legally a person isn't compelled to compensate. Let's say that because of me, I was able to save that item, and I did not. And now Mr. So-and-so lost money. Technically, I should compensate them because they, didn't lo- because they lost money because of my behalf. Now, legally, I'm not obligated to. But from heaven, God's looking upon you and saying, you know what? The best thing would be if you do. Because since you had the opportunity to help that person, and therefore, you should help that individual. Now we come to the next step. Our final case, which is a spiritual responsibility. The primary obligation and commandment regarding seeing somebody doing something wrong and critiquing them about it is brought in the book of Leviticus, but in an interesting way. Text number 12. You shall surely critique your fellow and you will not share in their guilt. Maimonides, in his codification of this law, articulates the mutual responsibility and what this means. Text number 13. One should not say, I will act righteously. And if others choose to stray from the path of righteousness, that is a matter between them and God. This attitude is antithetical to the Torah values. Rather, we are commanded to do the right thing ourselves and see to it that others, too, conduct themselves appropriately. Maimonides says that turning a blind eye or minding your own business and saying, you know what? That's not my business of what that person does wrong. It is your business. And therefore, when we see somebody acting inappropriately, we have an obligation to critique them on it because at the end of the day, when they do something wrong, we are doing something wrong. They are not just hurting themselves, but they're hurting us as well. And therefore, the same way we have to care for ourselves, we have to care for another person. And therefore, if I see somebody else transgressing, we are held accounted for because every single Jew is part of it. In cases we find, and many times in the Torah, that there were people punished by the very fact that they saw something being done wrong, for example, by the sin of the golden calf, that the people who did not stop those were rebuked, and that's why until today we have to atone for the sin of the golden calf because we did not stop those that were there or rebuked them for what they did wrong. Maimonides gives general guidance how we should go about it. Maimonides says as follows, how does one critique? You know, it's very easy to critique in today's society. To tell somebody off is the easiest thing to do, but to do it yourself is a little difficult. Uh, Therefore, he gives guidance how we critique. It's not so simple. When we critique others, whether regarding an interpersonal issue or religious matter, it should be done in private. We must speak patiently and gently, 
clarifying that we are motivated solely by the welfare and desire, by the merit reward in their world to come. There are many different ways how unfortunately people go about critiquing. There are some people that threaten hell. That some people say you're an outcast. That some people say you'll be banned. And all of a sudden, oh, hell will come down and therefore you have to return. You know, somebody's a televangelist, whatever you want to call about it. Maimonides says that's all wrong. The way you have to critique somebody when they do something wrong is look at the last words in the verse. And it should not be a sin. Make sure that when you're critiquing somebody, you're not going to cause yourself to sin or cause that person to sin. Don't tell them that you're telling them something because of they're bothering you. Out of respect for you, they should dress like this or respect for you, they should do so and so. It has to come from genuine care. It should be that you care for the person's physical and spiritual welfare. Because if it's words that come from the heart, will enter the heart. And as the Rebbe puts it, and if it doesn't enter the heart, that means they weren't from the heart. Because it's a guarantee that words that come from the heart will penetrate the heart. One must realize that the mitzvah, when we talk about preventing a person from doing harm, when we talk about preventing the person from doing harm, we're not just preventing the victims from being affected by the harm, but we're also preventing the offender from doing the harm. We're saving him as well. If you know somebody is going to do something terribly wrong, not only are you saving the people that are being, that may potentially be hurt, but you're taking this person that's mentally unstable and you're putting him and giving him the help that he needs. You're helping both people. And this is the way the Torah looks at it, that we have to look at it from a spiritual and physical perspective. Our obligation is not necessarily to report everything to the police. That means if you know a person's not well, check him into the hospital. If he doesn't want to go, then of course you have to call the police. Or if you think the only way to stop it is call the police. But we have to remember that when we are helping a person who's doing something wrong, we have to look at it for the person who is doing something wrong to help him or them and to help the people that he might harm. And both of these cases have that mutual obligation. And over here we see the difference between Jewish law and secular law. The way Jewish law looks at it, it's not your business to get involved. It's his business, it's his life. He's not doing anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. Why? Because you're just sitting on the sidelines. Jewish law says, no, this person's about to do a crime. You can help him. Stop him. Not only are you going to save the victims, but you're going to help this other person. And this other person is just like you. If you knew yourself that you needed help, would you go and check yourself in for help? That individual needs help. Check that person in for help. Interesting thing. There's one country that has adapted a similar law, which is the land of Israel. That in Israel, a person who knowing that a person may design to, create, to commit a felony and fails to use all reasonable means to stop that person from doing a felony can be imprisoned for two years. They almost never do it, but it's on the books. And they actually change it from the original English law to add to the point that you have an obligation to stop a person from doing a crime. While in no other country in Western society do they have such a thing that you have to stop a person from doing a crime. It's commendable. But Jewish law says no. We are responsible for one another. Not only for the victims, but for the offender as well. 
and automatically that changed up our perspective of our responsibility of how it's going to affect it. So there's two parts of it. My question is, what if the person is not receptive for whatever reason? Maybe they're defensive. Maybe they're just they have bad experience. They they don't want to deal. I don't want to do it. Okay. Don't tell me. So as we'll we're going to get to that in a moment. But at the end, first we need to know what the ideal is. The method of doing it is a separate story. We need to know that we are responsible. We need to know that we have to do what we can. And let's take it from another angle. If you were to know that this person's about to commit the most severe or heinous crime, we're not only that. Or let's say you know that this person has a treasure buried in their garden. What would you do to get them to, um, to dig it up? What would you do? You would find all different types of creative ways to be able to convince them. Of course, a person could be a stumbling block. It could be a stone wall and put up a stone wall and say, I don't care, tough luck. And I can tell you, there are people that give up millions of dollars because and in principle because of stupidities. Yes. But we have to do our job and hopefully through coming words from the heart will ultimately penetrate the heart. Jewish law takes this attitude and the responsibility towards another doesn't just extend in what they're doing wrong, as you're saying, but it also applies in mitzvahs. That our responsibility is to help another Jew do a mitzvah in every way possible. And that's why you can know, that's why we're here, and that's why I'm sure many of you know, any Chabad rabbi at any time you'll see him, if you want to put on tefillin, you want to do any type of mitzvah, whatever it may be, we're always encouraging people to do mitzvahs because our job, and the Rebbe emphasizes time and time again that as a Jewish people, no matter who we are, not only a rabbi, we have an obligation to help people excel in their relationship with God. But this law is not just a good gesture, it has actually ramifications. Which is, for example, according to Jewish law, if you borrow somebody else's things without permission, it's called stealing. It's according to Jewish law. Now, however, Jewish law says there are certain conditions when it would be allowed. For example, if the person wouldn't mind, I know that he wouldn't mind me using that item. When would that be? So Code of Jewish Law says as follows. Text number 15. Text number 15, it says, It is permissible for someone to use someone else's shofar without advance permission in order to fulfill a mitzvah. Why? Because we assume that people would happily oblige others to perform a mitzvah with their possessions, provided that no financial loss is incurred as a result. If I use your shofar, if I use your tefillin, is the tefillin going to get damaged if I put on tefillin with it? No. And therefore, any person would be more than happy that you use their item to do a mitzvah with it, as long as there's no financial loss. Now, of course, this is assuming that you put it back where you found it. You can't do it on a regular basis. But if you happen to see a chauffeur, you don't have to ask the fellow for permission. You can use the chauffeur and fulfill the obligation. The same thing is also with a sukkah. If you see a person's sukkah, you can go in it because if we assume that people are happy to, for you to fulfill the mitzvah without their knowledge because, that because it's a mitzvah and they'll let you use it. So we see the responsibility extends not only in the negative but also in the positive. It goes even a step further. The extent of our responsibility for a mitzvah for others reflect also in ritual law. So for example, 
There are many mitzvahs that we make a blessing for. We make a blessing for hearing the Megillah, we make a blessing for hearing the Shofar, we make a blessing for Kiddush, we make all different kinds of blessings. Now, what's the usual blessing? The blessing is, as you usually know, text number 16, Blessed are you God, the King of the Universe, who sanctified us with this commandment concerning whatever it may be. The general rule is that regarding any blessing, if I make the blessing, I have you in mind with the blessing that I made. For example, Kiddush. One person makes Kiddush, everybody in the room just answers Amen, and they fulfill the blessing. They fulfill the mitzvah of Kiddush. Do you know that technically, according to Jewish law, you don't even have to drink from the wine to fulfill the Kiddush. As long as one person drank the wine, said the Kiddush, everybody that heard it fulfilled their obligation. Same ideas by Shofar. One person makes the blessing, everybody fulfills the obligation. Even if they don't say Amen, they're fulfilling the obligation. Why is that? And the mission establishes as follows. Text number 17. This is the rule. Whoever is not personally obligated in a particular mitzvah cannot perform it on behalf of others. The logic is that if I am not obligated in the mitzvah, I can't have you obligated in the mitzvah. I cannot fulfill the obligation for you. So for that reason, a non-Jew cannot make the blessing for a Jew. Why? Because the non-Jew is not obligated. But a, or, for that matter, a child. Because the level of a child's obligation is not the same as an adult's obligation, a child cannot make the blessing. A child, I mean, under bar mitzvah, excuse me, cannot make the blessing for an adult because they're not obligated, while an adult is obligated. But if an adult makes it for another adult, there's nothing wrong. So whatever it may be, any person who makes the blessing, the same would apply to, in any of these cases, the logic would apply. Any Jew who's obligated can then fulfill the obligation for everybody else. And the reason is, you might say, once I fulfill the obligation, then good. But what happens if I already heard the shofar today? Or if I already made Kiddush today? And then you come late and say, I need to make Kiddush. And you don't want to read the blessing or whatever it may be. A person doesn't know how to read the blessing. Can I make the blessing for that person? I already fulfilled my obligation, but that person did not. Can I now make the blessing again to fulfill the obligation? What would you say? Yes. Why? I have fulfilled my obligation. Based on what we spoke about before, because all Jews are intertwined, and because if you didn't do the mitzvah, there's a part of me that didn't do the mitzvah yet. That means have I fully, have I fully done the mitzvah? No. So therefore I can still make the blessing. And even though I already heard Kiddush, or even though I already heard Shofar, I can make the blessing again. As we see in text number 18, with regard to all blessings, the rule is that people who have fulfilled their own obligation can nevertheless repeat it again for the sake of the blessing to cause other people to the obligation. Why? As the, as the commentator says, text number 19, because the reason is that all Jews are responsible for one another, and because all Jews are responsible for one another, therefore, in a mitzvah related, consequently, if my fellow has yet fulfilled their mitzvah obligation, I haven't fulfilled the obligation as well, and therefore I could. So what we see from over here clearly, the responsibility allows us to make a blessing, because if somebody is lacking, then I am lacking. And because of that, it doesn't only mean, it's not only in the negative that I have to critique them or help them, but it's also in the positive. 
that the moment that once somebody does a mitzvah, we all do the mitzvah. And whenever somebody has a rejoicing, we're all rejoicing. Whatever it may be, all Jews are part of one. And therefore, if somebody hasn't done the mitzvah, my blessing can go for him as well. So, That's because you're enjoying it, and I may not be enjoying it. If I'm not eating the candy. Can I make the blessing for you? So, in, technically, I could. But the sages said that when it comes to a birchas hanenin, to a bracha that you're enjoying because you're having the pleasure yourself, therefore you should have to make the blessing. But for example, look by Kiddush, I make hagafen, nobody else makes hagafen. Not only that I can make hamotzi, nobody else would have to. We make hamotzi, but technically you don't have to. By, and so on. But to specifically by those brachas of pleasure is that people should not forget to make a bracha. That's the reason why we do it. But technically speaking, there are cases where I am drinking the wine, I am making the blessing on the wine, and nobody else makes the bracha. What about when uh, let's say, two or and everybody takes like, you know, the different things that's because they want to make more blessings for the memory of a person so therefore they're specifically saying a blessing that means if I want to I could make a blessing the reason we don't there's a concept called with great it's nicer when you have a larger crowd so therefore by Kiddush by Avdallah by Benching there's a bigger crowd so therefore one person makes the blessing but if many people are eating on their own then they should all make their own blessing that's why for sitting down by a regular breakfast, every person's going to make their own hamotzi. Every person's going to make their own individual blessing. So as long as there's a Jew somewhere that hasn't fulfilled their own mitzvah obligation, our mitzvah is incomplete, our souls are commingled, and because of that, it's lacking. And when one person lacks, we all lack. Over here, we have a short video of the Rebbe that from already in 1951, the Rebbe set this as his mandate, and here's just a few excerpts of talks of the Rebbe, it's in Yiddish, but there's English subtitles to see how he underlines this point. Ganzen verloren, aber verloren in der Ruhe. 
Amidafni ten ton morna beginen lente. So Yiddishkeit wird in Daffen Toni Nerli Jonim und darf sich da weder betonkommen. Mit der Sache mehr Schwierigkeiten, wie von das ist Ainia Ikri und Ainia Chiyuni und Ainia von Pikot Neposchis Mamor, aber Solaris nehmen die Hero und die Hero Solaris im meisten Bequem. A jeder Nese Faldur, was er tut, wenn man nehmen. Nese Faldur, was er tut, wenn ich schmose, alle die Lüge oder Lamid, oder Reche Ton der Gufe, wenn er geht zu Apotza, zu Ajadus, und die meisten Bepeel, gehen Bepeel, Mamisch, Begufe, und reden Bepeel, Mamisch, Befieh, und bei Weisen erleben die Kumbaschkel, Bepeel, Mamisch, Beramach, Ebro, ich sage jeder, was ich mit dem Lernen tue und mit keinem sein Ehre nichts ist, wo immer viele haben, mit keinem Nefesh Achas Mitzvah, ist er echt mit keinem Kilo, Kien, Elo, Molli, Allachas, Kamer, Bekamer, wie mit etwas Bebeh, ein Bekechisch auf Kohl, Echad, wie Achas, wo es ein Nefesh Achas ihr Gehen nicht in sein Jahres, zwischen ihnen, und mit schön gesehen haben, dass er auf dem Massel gewählt kam, bekam er mit Vorschuss, und Massel gewählt in Asami Nefen, die Gerät Frie, weil er geht zum Meisterchio, und die werden es auf dem Massel gewählt, seine Dallot, eh gewonnen Marzili, seine gewonnen Echit Marspi, und abgehen und Massel sein Igen, was ein Mangel, was zu sehen, mit dem Konsum und dem Medizinischen Tier. So this is why when we talk about the Pew research and Jewish identity in the United States, what makes it so troubling is when we talk about the feeling of Jewish responsibility, that there are so many young Jews who have no knowledge of their Jewish heritage that they even have an idea or to even think or an inkling to be able to start to study. They don't even call themselves Jewish, never even brought up Jewish. It's not even, it's something foreign to them. And because we have a soul connection to them, we have that responsibility, that shared heritage, to share it with them and give them the ability to enjoy the deep meaning of the religious practices. And this was the responsibility that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was motivated by, as you just saw in the videos, and motivates over 4,000 Chabad Shluchim around the world of making it their personal responsibility to other Jews to be able to give them the opportunities to bring back what we promised each other, Mount Sinai, and as we started off this class we were right before Shavuos, in that, in that fundamental time, in that time of standing at the foot of the mountain, where God gave us the Torah and we said we are going to guarantee one another that we will make sure that this Torah is not forgotten and to make sure that we observe these commandments and that God's law will always be done. We have to exercise that responsibility and remind ourselves of Maimonides' uh, guidance, approaching them not from an egotistical or judgmental place, but from a place of genuine care and concern from our heart and soul, and eventually it will penetrate. You may not see it today, you may not see it tomorrow, but you never know when that finally that little drop that you've been talking about all this time to this person 
will finally penetrate and turn them around and give them the ability to reach into themselves, to ourselves, and finally seeing how we can finally reverse the trends of this graph and bring about a more pleasant, happy, and a world which is ready for the coming of Moshiach. Next week, we will <coughs> continue with um, personal freedoms. At what point did we explore Judaism's perspective on personal liberty and tracing its impact on laws governing employer-employee relationships? Lesson three, beyond taking offense. One, Judaism has a very broad definition of mutual responsibility. It's based on a vision of shared purpose and mission, which is influenced by each action of every person. Two, in addition to a shared mission, Jewish mysticism teaches that our souls are united. Three, Jewish law considers it a crime to remain silent when aware of a threat to someone else's life, and it also mandates that we extend every effort necessary to protect others from monetary laws. The Jewish value of mutual responsibility calls on us to guide others away from transgression of the Torah's commandments. This must be done gently and be motivated by genuine concern for their spiritual welfare. Five, Jewish law also teaches that we are responsible to assist others in the performance of mitzvot. Our own mitzvah observance is incomplete until we do so. Any questions?